This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Casey Bates. Casey is a Seattle, Washington-based producer who you may know from his work with Portugal the Man, Chiodos, Pierce the Veil, Memphis May Fire, Gatsby's American Dream, Foxy Shazam, This Providence, Forgive Durden, and MXPX. We have a pretty awesome conversation. This is part of our round two questions that we've been doing with a bunch of producers. Casey uh, was on the podcast previously. He was actually one of the first episodes. In fact, I think the first producer interview is what we figured out. If you haven't heard that episode, I highly suggest checking out that, but this episode can be enjoyed even if you haven't heard that one, and you can go back in either order. It just helps you get to know him a little bit better. First, I want to tell you about one of Jabberjaw's other podcasts, Friend or Foe, is the comedy podcast that will have you laughing and keeps you guessing. Listen in as host Devin Wilder speaks with engaging humans across the pop culture sphere to find out what propels their art and makes them tick. This oddball and insightful show features enlightening interviews, games, and parody in spots. Amazing guests that have included Mad TV's Chelsea Davison, singer-songwriter Kina Granis, comedian Ver Das, Brittany Young of From Glow on Netflix, and multi-Grammy winner and comedy genius Weird Al Yankovic. New episodes of Friend or Foe drop almost every Monday on friendorfopod.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, and everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, including its home base on Jabberjaw Media. It can also be found across social media at friendorfopod. I also want to remind you my new book, Processing Creativity, The Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With, is out now. If you enjoy this conversation, I guarantee you'll enjoy that book. It's on ebook, physical, and audiobook, so if you like listening to podcasts, you can just pick it up on audiobook, and it's the same thing. With that said, here's Casey. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out. And please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. I I try to avoid it like the plague. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've you've been in this situation before, but if I say I'm a music producer, mm-hmm. it in, 
inevitably leads to like a five minute conversation with them being super disappointed that <laughs> I'm not at all what they think a music producer is. Yes. So I'll, I, I'm almost always like, I, I'm in audio production or sometimes I'll say I record music mm-hmm. and they'll be like, oh, that's cool. You know, I, you work out of a studio. I'm like, yeah, you know, here in Seattle and that's a lot easier than, but then there's always like a friend of mine that's nearby that like, oh, no, no, no. He's a music producer. I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and then, and then it, it's gotten a little bit easier because uh, I've got that Portugal record right now, which uh-huh. is doing really well. And people hear it, and, and they, they, a lot of people kind of recognize the name. And, so, mm-hmm. and, and that's like the thing. They're like, oh, okay, cool. A few, few years but, of uh, NPR premieres does that in uh, you know, the Seattle area type cities, New York type cities. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> So they recognize that, and, that, and then that, then they kind of get what you do. Yeah. Then they can go. Oh, I heard. I, I heard that on the radio or, or a commercial or something. And then then the then the ice is broken, and I can kind of explain a little bit more. But it used to be where I just would be like, "Have you heard of the band Saves the Day?" And they'd be like, "No." And I'd be like, "Okay, well, you've you're not going to know any single band that I've ever worked with." <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So catch us up. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Obviously, there's this Portugal the Man record. Oh, man, I could fill up a whole hour of talking about that record. I don't know how deep <laughs> you want to go on that. I did. Maybe give a give, give us some highlights on that. I think pe- people would be interested in that. It's, uh, we worked on it for four years. Mm-hmm. And like the, the last time I had I was on your podcast, I was like in the middle of yes, it. Yes, I so remember that. It's just, it was ongoing i mean we were finishing the record came out uh middle of june and i mean i the vinyl ended up getting delayed because we were still changing things like in late may wow it was uh, it was unbelievable but it 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 was a it was a fun process there's i'm a co-producer on it there's like three or four other producers on the record Mm. and so so what what do those roles look like oh man (laughs) you tell me i don't know It, it everybody worked on everything which is crazy Mm. so like one producer might start a song but like there's stuff that i did on every single song on this whole record and and vice versa for every single producer on the record so i think the band kind of gave a global co-producer credit to everybody but i don't really know how they figured out the writing side of things and like publishing and all that stuff huh but it i mean probably when the last time we talked i don't know we probably had 30 or 40 songs and then we just scrapped it all and started all over again. Wow. <laughs> so when you say, re- so you say scrapped it all like literally none of it came into being or like parts of it came into being like what wh- how what did that look like? Ah, uh, parts of it definitely lyrics and lines and melodies and parts of songs kind of made their way into the final batch. We spent 3 weeks at a studio up here in Seattle and we're not we didn't use like any of it i don't even think any of that stuff's on the record wow <laughs> it's like we it, it's a record that's unlike anything i probably will ever be a part of again unless i do another one of their records mm-hmm. in that the budget was huge like it was it was like an 80s rock band budget and i'm not even sure the label never set out to make it that way but it was like they the band kept this like carrot on a stick where it was like the labels into it for so much money and they're like and they'd send him a song and the label be like oh this is actually really cool uh, let's keep going and mm. they just somehow managed to do that for four years and wow man it was it was a process that's interesting and it seems though this multiple producer thing is getting like i just had uh john congleton on and he was talking about doing that for a manchester orchestra and like this is becoming a thing of like lots of 
different perspectives on similar uh, material. Yeah, I I just did a record uh, with a band called I the Mighty on mm-hmm. Equal Vision. I I just. I think the mixes are just getting done now, but I ended up splitting that duty with Chris Crummett. Oh, cool. And that was a weird, another weird process that just the band, the band wanted two producers to do the record. And I'm always game for something new and different. And so we did that. I'll, we should, we'll cover that later. And I know some of these other questions, there's some funny stuff that goes on with that record. But since we last talked, it was, I was trying to figure out my timeline. I think I rolled into the Amorosa record right after we had talked that, so that was right. like early early 2016 and that kind of came up real quick like they had a producer that they had a scheduling conflict with and something just something didn't work out and so they needed a guy last minute and i had some free time and i was like all right and i talked to the guys and we ended up going out to nashville and uh spending like a month out there and oh, wow that was a blast those guys were those some of the coolest guys one of the most fun times i've had making a record and that That's was a record that is like not it's it's not like how I like to do records because they we wrote like on the fly the whole time. Oh and wow! I do not like doing that. But man, like Bradley, the lead singer, he's phenomenal, and he he just came in every day and worked on lyrics and melodies, and we were just writing the songs as we go. And I think we even finished early, which was crazy. Wow! But it was such a fun such a fun record. That that is unheard of in the writing as you go uh, style of records. No, it is. Totally. And then right after that was a Fall of Troy record that never happened. And huh. that's a that's a funny story because they I think they they talked to me. It might have been right before I started the MROSA record. They're like, we want to we want to do a record with you because I'd done. Um, fa- I can't remember the name of the EP. It's like Phantom on the Horizon or mm-hmm. something. It's like they did this really cool uh, like five song EP, I think. I'd done it with them years before, and I think at that time I was gonna do their next record, but it just didn't pan out. So then they came back around like, "Hey, let's let's do this record," and I was like, "Yeah, that'd be amazing. Let's let's set it up." And I, I had one stipulation. I said, "You have to pre-production this record. Like, you have to go in and record it and demo it out, so we can listen to it and talk about it and figure it out." And like, because I I love those guys, I love that band, but I wanted to really focus it and and push it in in the in the right direction and they booked out a whole month at one of the nicest studios here in Seattle it's called Robert Lang Studios uh-huh. it's an incredible place like Foo Fighters recorded there like it's amazing and they 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 sent me a like half the budget deposit to me and they're like all right and so about a week before the record starts or maybe it was two weeks either way i i was in i was still in nashville and i get a phone call from my manager and he's like are you sitting down and i was like yeah (laughs) and he's like all right well this fall troy record is not going to happen and i was like what do you mean and he's like well you know how you wanted them to go and uh demo out the songs and i was like yeah And he's like well they went in with a guy over the weekend and they said they're done with the record And I was like, "What do you mean they're done with the record?" He's like, "They just love it. They think it's they think it's perfect. They're done." <laughs> was, wow. And, they're, and, he's like, and they're like, "Hey!" And they're like, "Hey, d- keep your money. Don't even worry about the studio. We're done." And I was like, "What in the world just happened <laughs> to this?" I, you know, doing this podcast for the last year and a half, I've heard a lot of stories. That is not what I've heard. <laughs> That's it, it's the weirdest story I've ever. It, it, <laughs> I've never had a band just like cancel because they went in with some like <laughs> just went into some local studio and said that's ah, done. <laughs> that's so uh, funny. Oh man, they ended up going. I think they ended up going into Robert Lang's some of the time that month and just 
I, I, they worked on, I don't know what they were doing. I mean, they had the times. So yeah. Went in there and did something, but oh man, that was, that was insane. <laughs> that, that, that sounds insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what else have you had going on? Um. So later, I guess like a year ago, I did a band called Northern Faces, another Equal Vision band. Mm-hmm. I did their, I did their first record and this was their second. And we went, uh, we, we were out in Utica, New York mm-hmm. for three weeks. This like small rundown town, like upstate New yeah, York, I, out I, in the middle of nowhere. I know it well. So you were a big blue north then, I assume? Yeah. 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 I, 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 Have you, uh. Have you been there? I, it's funny. Uh, Alan Douches's wife helped them find the space, and obviously, I used to work for Alan Douches for years, so um, right. I know that. And then I pa- I've passed through Utica because I grew up near the, uh, that area. It's a it's a rough place. It's a that that area is um, when they talk about how uh, the New York State economy is bad, but New York City economy is amazing. That city is the uh, evidence. <laughs> It was weird, man. I had a hard time with like the lack of good food and coffee mm-hmm. that uh, for those three weeks. It was it was honestly rough. I had a, ate a lot of Arby's, and <laughs> I that studio is insane and it's phenomenal. I mean, like this this old church they converted. It's just beautiful, and they, I mean they've spared no expense. It, it is truly an amazing studio, and I would I mean recommend any band in that area because I'm I'm sure it's affordable still, and it's. It's just incredible. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I remember when Blake Harnage was going up there to do the Paris record. I said to him, I was like, "Go to Whole Foods before you leave Brooklyn. <laughs> You're not going." <laughs> Why didn't you tell me this? <laughs> I didn't know you were going, but it was like one of those things. Because like, I run into Blake at like we have a local like healthy juice avocado toast place, and I see him there all the time. I'm like, dude, I know we're on the same plate here. Don't go up <laughs> there without leaving with some avocados and some juice for yourself. Oh my gosh! Did he? Did I, they were actually going in right after us? Did oh, that end up working out for them? I, I think that's what the record is. I have not seen him at the local juice place since, so I don't know for sure. But I think that's the case. Dude, he fell off the wagon. He spent three weeks <laughs> I th- in. I think it's really he's just he's just he's just real busy. So, <laughs> but that is funny. That real you had, quick, that's funny that you had the similar experience of that. Oh man, no, I. I, I love Mexican food, and that is not the place to get Mexican food, but I was like, I, ne- I, I needed some Mexican food, and so, like, I, I like, looked at places up on Yelp, and I go into this place, and it's, like, an Italian-slash-Mexican restaurant, oh. and I was like, oh, man, I don't know. So, I go, I was like, all right, fine. So, I go sit down, I order just, like, chicken tacos, and it's, it was, like, you know, the just a, a tortilla you get at the grocery store with, like, Italian seasoned chicken and mozzarella cheese and like like iceberg lettuce. It was it was I don't even it was the worst taco I've ever had in my life. And tacos are not hard or they're hard to screw up. I, I, I will say this as somebody who's lived in New York City for a long time. We may have amazing Mexican food now, but that was getting tacos in most of New York City throughout the oh, no. 90s into the early 2000s. <laughs> so I, I feel your pain there. Ugh, good. <laughs> it was it was. It was intense, man. It was rough, but we that that record came out. It was fun, despite despite the food. You you, you got through it. Oh yeah, we the only the funny thing with that record was that it's a church, and so it's this giant live room mm-hmm. with they still have the huge vaulted ceilings, and I couldn't do drums in there. And he, I mean, they'd spent all this money tuning the room and trying to get it, but it was so live. Mm-hmm. I mean, this in the in Northern Faces is kind of an older. school old school rock band vibe indie rock and i 
I ended up to having to pull the drums into the small ISO room and, and mic them up in there. And the, I just remember the house engineer was, was a little upset about it. Yeah. Was, he's like, you're not using my room for any of it. And I, I put some mics out there and I was like, oh, well, you know, we could, use, we could use some of the reverb, but it was, it was so live that I had to, we put so much baffling and we just could not get it. Even like the snare mic had so much reverb in it. I was like, this isn't going to work. But the, And I think that's the thing that people sometimes don't, get is that a lot of those big rooms were designed like that and i can remember like a lot of records i used to do at water music and water music has this humongous humongous room probably about the size that now as tall as that place but we'd have to literally surround the drums with gobos like and build yeah. an alternate drum room with like literally just every moving blanket we could find for miles i bought more moving blankets because if we were doing like a no effects type beat it's like the reverb would be tripping over every close mic. Right, totally. It's I've I've found my favorite rooms that I end up using tend to be pretty small, like mm. a, a short because you I mean I'm a lot of times I'm compressing the drum mics anyways, and so it really pulls out a lot of the like you get more decay with it. And but so I mean like I'll, I'll take a short decay over a long one any day when it comes to drums, at least for me. Yep. I mean, I think it's also, the, you know, the, it's one thing if you're doing a really slow record uh, with 85 beats per minute compared to what a lot of the records we do are. Yeah, exactly. So you do that record. What else happens? Well, after that, it was back to Portugal, just nonstop doing. I, I spent a I spent a week on the road with them. Mm. We were, because they, I don't even know why, they had some sort of deadline and they're like, well, we need to get some things done. So they flew me out and I spent a week going through like Wisconsin and can or wait, up into, we went through Chicago. Anyway, I don't know. It was, <laughs> we didn't get anything done. Not a single thing. We, we <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you, I mean, we, we, they have these nice tour buses mm -hmm. and stuff and, and they, we have a studio set in the back, but it's just impossible to get anyone to want to do anything <laughs> when they're touring and like staying up till 4am and like, oh, I felt bad, but we, I mean, I was out there for a whole week. I mean, they paid for all my flights and everything and we literally didn't get a single thing done. I, I think that that, see, this is the common story of when this scenario happens is that, you, you know, it, it is the thing. It's like everybody's dehydrated and tired and, you know, being distracted. And you're like, I already am punching in. Why do I have to punch in 24 hours a day? I, I've never, I never did the touring band thing mm -hmm. and I'm older now. And like, I actually like, if I go someplace, I want to stay in like a nicer hotel. I want to feel really comfortable. And just being on the road for one week in a really nice plush tour bus was it was hard for me mm -hmm. and and like every single morning I would wake up and go I just want to go home and then but it, usually I'm a little hungover and then yeah. we would the day would go on and and there's there's hardly there's just so much going on when you're a headliner and they've got sound checks and like load ins and all this weird stuff going on and then there's maybe an hour or two to try to sit down and work on something and then the drinks come out and then the band's <laughs> playing the show and then after the show happens then you're up till till you're going to get on the, you know, whatever bus call is at three in the morning. And then you wake up the next day saying, I want to go home. <laughs> but last night was a lot of fun. <laughs> and he started all over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a young man's game. It's not for me. Yes, I hear you. So that anything else? Yeah. No, I mean, then uh, the Eye of the Mighty record, which we'll get into a little bit later. There's cool. some fun stuff to talk about on that. So is there any advice you give to each band you record? Uh, the one thing I say, and I'm... I'm pretty sure I probably said this in the last podcast is I just say never burn a bridge. Like it's just, it's just not worth it to me. I, 
I've I've been screwed over a few times. Like not like so bad that I'm like I'm gonna sue somebody or anything, but mm-hmm. just I don't know personal things or you know someone promised to finish a project with me and doesn't or just weird little things but it all it's just not worth it for me to spend the time and energy to go after them or do whatever I just you know I brush it off and and more often than not time will go by and someone that was involved with that project to come back around later and be like man you were really cool during that whole shitty situation let's uh let's do something else together and you know I I, I think that 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 always pays off to learn to keep the ego in and uh let it go well there's so many moving parts that you kind of forget about i mean there's bands are four to six people with management and labels and all these there's so many things going on that it might just be one person in that whole cog that's really causing this problem and but so you're if you just like brush it off then there's then there's the other five or six that'll come back around later and be like dude you were really cool about that versus you like raising hell and trying you know telling everyone to screw off and then you piss off seven or eight people and <laughs> you never work with them again. So totally. it works that way with promoters and a lot of bands. I think most young bands complaints these days tend to be that they didn't get paid at a show, mm-hmm. whatever they, you know, Oh, we brought 200 of these kids and the the headliners gave us a hundred bucks or something. I'm like, you know what? That's they're the headliner. You gotta just work your way up and keep your head down and just be nice to everyone and make friends. Like I promise you, it'll come back around. Yeah, and realize that. Like I, I always say, it's like uh, for every five promises you get, if three of them come true, you're doing great, and if one comes yeah. true, you're doing about average. <laughs> Absolutely. Hi. I'm going to just take one second to tell you about something that if you're listening to this podcast, you will probably be interested in. Noise Creators put out a book called The 30-Minute Guide to Getting More Fans. It's by me, Jesse Cannon. I wrote a book called Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business. That's been one of the best-selling books on how to build a fan base for your band. That book is really long and detailed. What we decided to do, though, is make a smaller version of that book that you can read in under 30 minutes that tells you all about how you can build a fan base for your band. I'm sure you've noticed there's been far too many people popping up in your Facebook news feed slinging information on how to build a fan base for a subscription or $100 or something. But Noise Creators was founded because we saw the potential to make the music world a better place. When I started writing about the music business over eight years ago, I always wanted to just teach all the bands that I thought had potential how to do this because I saw too many bands not build themselves up that I thought were the world should hear. So this book has all that knowledge that I learned building fan bases for bands, producing and working in the music business for years. I managed a bunch of successful bands in the past, and this is how I got them to be more than a band that just their hometown knew about. So if you head over to noisecreators.com under the more tab that says ebook, you can get it there for free. All you have to do is enter your email address or your Twitter address. Thanks for taking the time to check this out. So how do you figure out how long a record takes to make? Man, it used to be so easy <laughs> to figure it out. Like it I've just had between I the Mighty and Portugal, it's just changed how I kind of viewed it. You I, I guess nine times out of 10, I can pretty much figure it out. And it's just gauging. I'm talking to the guys and kind of seeing where they're at talent wise and, and preparation wise, how ready they are to to record something. But usually records can be done anywhere from two to four to five weeks, depending on, on a bunch of circumstances. I mean, if you're 
are we doing full string arrangements? Are we talking 150 tracks a song? <laughs> or are we just going in and doing guitar, bass, and drums? And it tends to be pretty easy for me to kind of figure. I, I mean, I had a band, a local band that I just worked with that I overestimated time on. And that really super talented, Like just, but it's just guitar, bass, and drums. And, they, and we wanted a real kind of live, raw feel. And we, we just did like a four-song EP. And I mean, I set aside almost a week to do it. And I mean, we, we could have done the whole thing in like two days. Wow. And, it would it would have been exactly the same as it because it it was a one of those rare situations where the singer would act, he he preferred to sing through the whole song and he's really good oh and wow so he would just sing through the whole song we would just do that like four or five times and kind of do a little comp and that's it, it just sound just that was kind of the vibe like keep it raw and real and just kind of loose and really a fun project but yeah most of the time but then you've got like Portugal, which takes four years and mm-hmm. I the Mighty, which took months to to complete and. And but for you know that's that's that is that is the few of of the many. So most of the time, I think I think if I really wanted to bust my ass, I could do most bands in two weeks. I mean, if we just mm-hmm. didn't take any time off, and I'm not sure that's going to be the best product, but it 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 could be done. I I think three weeks is kind of my comfort level of like if we're going to be doing ten songs, I can I, I usually feel pretty comfortable saying we well, we can get this all done in. Uh, in three weeks. Hmm. Very cool. How about you? I mean, what do you? So, I have this th- thing of um, one. I tend to find that the thing that goes over the most is vocals, and so I gauge that a lot about how experienced the vocalist is. If they haven't been touring much, even you know, the one thing I get, even get tripped up about is I feel like I do a lot of baby bands and legacy bands, but not as many bands that are like fourth LP. Right. But like when I do, then I'll like have the thing of I'm like. I've been working with a bunch of old pros or I've been working with a bunch of things, but then I forget, oh, some people haven't been exercising that muscle of their vocal. Oh, totally. And I try to really, one, I mean, one, I don't do records where I don't hear demos is like, you know, number one rule, which, you know, obviously I'm like, I'm looking forward to when they go and do the demo and then that's the record. Um, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I try to gauge it on that, but really I feel like vocals is where I'm going to take the longest. I try to do the... If it's anything more than a pop punk band, I try to do the song a day thing after drums. So how are, six songs a day of drums and then one song a day of everything. But if uh, it's a pop punk band, that can get down to two songs a day at once we hit overdubs. Yeah. Have you ever had to shut a band down that doesn't send you demos? Like you just cancel the project? You know what's funny is I've never not gotten them. But what we do when we don't get them is that I offer the band to come in and sometimes I comp it and just say, okay, you guys don't have the capability of demos. We're going to come in for five hours. We're going to bang this out. Like you're going to play these songs live. And I even sometimes have the intern or the assistant do it if like I'm too busy and like, you know, I've done a 10 hour day. I'm not sitting through that just so that we have it. Um, I, for me right now, so much of my, if I'm going to actually produce instead of just mix and master, I want to make sure that I'm going to have the time with the songs and time with also, I mean, my big thing with also wanting to do pre-production is like the technique thing. Like there's so many times it's like this drummer is going to need four weeks of learning how to re-hit the snare drum and not have it bounce the whole time. Right. Right. And, uh, that's a, that's a good way to do it. I (laughs) really, I, yeah, I think I mean I think it's that thing is like what we're trying to do is ensure that nothing messes this up, and so I would I'm really I mean it's also the thing of like I kind of lose money when I do a record or when I produce a record at this point because it eats into mixing and mastering which pays better so yeah I'd rather just get it right but I, I think that you know the other thing too is is that with the singer it's like also it's like we can spot that the singer is getting a little weak 
or the drummer can't, is not going to be able to play for the whole day when they can't even play for five hours. And they're like, yo, this is a muscle in your body. Let's work this muscle out. Yeah, I've ran into a few things. Like with the I the Mighty record, I, see, that's why I was asking about the demos because, mm. like, we. Part of the thing with that record was I was like, you guys have to have demos of these songs done like a month before the studio. Like I was like, 100% has to be in my inbox. I want to hear these songs. And it just never came. Mm. <laughs> like, And this is a record that's on the books. We got two producers going. It's, it's for a label. And it just came down to it. And there was like four or five songs kind of demoed out and then the rest were like all right we're gonna be hitting the ground running and so i'm like i'm like do you really have the balls just to be like sorry guys we're canceling this record right now yeah i i I, I guess it's not cancel it's it's more just like okay this is what we do i mean i i a good friend of mine just had the thing of like the band like promised everything was written and then they get there like we have zero vocals written and oh gosh and then they had to re-record the record because the yeah. singer literally they had to arrange things around the vocals and then it, it like hit the thing of like these are wrong keys things like that and it's like great well done oh i've been there so many times <laughs> <laughs> so let's get get into to more of this so my next question is kind of related to this tell me about the work you do before a band starts recording in pre-production most bands these days someone in the band has some sort of basic recording capability and i don't even care if it's like sticking your phone in the in the your practice space and recording something i mean that's kind of worst case scenario but it works i want demos to come in so i can go back and forth with the band and hopefully they have a decent recording capability so they can go in and change guitar parts and restructure things before yeah i mean before a pre-production happens that's what i'm like guys the more we can get done before you get here and before we really have to dive in the the better it's going to be for everybody and so that's my main thing is in that's a perfect world and it really doesn't i mean it sounds like you, you're a little bit better at making sure bands take care of this than I am, and that's probably something that I need to work on as far as just pushing and making sure that these things get done. But a lot of times it doesn't really work out that way. But every once in a while, I, I work with bands that are super hardworking and on top of it, and I can be like, hey, this verse needs to change, try something different, and then within 24 hours, they've sent me a whole new version of that song. And those are always going to be the best projects. So I, I just, to, to young bands and, and to producers should take a uh, a key from you and that just make sure that that these bands are working hard before they even get into the studio you know it's an interesting what i learned uh, recently is like a friend of mine who um manages creative engineers not uh engineers like us but like uh for coding she -hmm. talked about the idea of that every three business days she goes through her list and just makes sure she's nagged about what she needs from them and i thought that was an interesting thing of uh mike i did it on one record of that i really nagged the band and reminded them because i think there is that thing of that the squeaky wheel gets the oil and they're thinking about that their merch isn't printed and then they they're like oh i did my work my two hours for the day instead of oh what will really sell more merch is if i write a good record gosh i and and how did it work well so on that record it was the thing of like i consistently got good results but then another record where i've been doing that it's like i just keep getting the thing of like we're really busy and i'm like okay i trust you guys i've done a record with this band before so i know that they value demos but i'm a little scared i mean we got another month before i panic (laughs) So we will see. They say they have songs. Oh no, that's what, that's the best. oh we got songs, man. Don't worry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we got them. <laughs> so w- w- with this, how do you show a band that you're on the same team? Man, it's a tough question. It's kind of like I just try to make bands feel as comfortable as possible, and I do 
like I guess the analogy for me would be I think the best projects come out when we're all on the same team, but I'm more the coach of the mm-hmm. team and kind of steering the ship because when a lot of bands want everyone on that level playing field, including me, and it just creates like the too many cooks in the kitchen scenario and everyone's got to say and things slow to a grinding halt because nobody can make a decision because no one and they don't even allow anyone to really kind of steer it and say all right this is the this is how it's going to be this is all right we're moving on i don't really got a great answer for it other than like i'm just kind of reading people as we a lot of times i'm meeting these bands for the first time and i'm just kind of figuring out like hey are these can i joke with these guys Mm -hmm. or are they super serious or and and i'm constantly kind of changing my style and even within the band i mean there's going to be a lot of uh you know it's usually like the bass player that and the keyboard players that are usually the more fun loving just having to they're just happy to be there just having fun and then there's, there's the singer that, that tends to be a little more serious and <laughs> really really into what's going on and and so it just kind of I kind of change depending on who I'm interacting with but it's it's always it's almost out of like a fear I guess of like I I want to have an enjoyable time doing this record so I want to make it as comfortable for them as possible so that mm-hmm. it makes it easier on me like as as we we go through this day to day because these tend to be long days and people can get worn down really easily including me and and so what i'm i'm there to to facilitate and to help them and to make it as easy as possible so that, uh, i mean that it's kind of i guess an answer to the question no, I, what, how, I, how how would you answer that question like uh, you have a specific thing that you do so i try to just tell them that like I'm trying to do your vision, and right. that's my line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the thing, and, and like, I'm sure we probably both read it in the same Jerry Finn interview when we were young. Yeah. And like, uh, it is that thing of like, you know, you're like, hey, like, at the end of the day, I'm never gonna fight you for a fight. It's like, I'm gonna do this, but you're gonna get your way at the end of the day. And reminding, I think sometimes some people, you know, I I, I read this like uh, psychological. Uh, study about uh, children who are spanked, how they never believe that anybody who is above them in rank is on their side. And it rags so true to me, because obviously um, working in punk, you've been around a lot of children who've been spanked too many times. uh, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, it's this interesting thing of like, you know, I'm sure you've had this, is like, there's just some people who you have to remind them almost every hour on the hour that you're trying to work with them and that just because you're disagreeing with them doesn't mean you're not doing it for the sake of them. Exactly, exactly. Like, I guess that's maybe that's the part where it breaks down sometimes is that it's not so abundantly clear that we I'm in this to make the best record possible and to make you guys the best sounding record possible and whatever decisions I'm making are for the good of the record. It's in... But then it, to some extent that requires that the band check their ego a little mm-hmm. bit and be able to take that direction. And that's so hard for so many bands. It's why I've been like, I've been working with a lot of local bands mm-hmm. lately, which has been so much fun. But because I've kind of got this history now of, of a, 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 a discography of these records and this kind of, uh, to, for lack of a better word, like a clout, that then there's this like kind of... Uh, they walk in there's this respect there and and so i get it's a lot of fun because i can be like no nah, that's no nah, let's not do that no no yeah. let's do something let's do this and they're like okay totally yeah whatever you want mm-hmm. I'm like oh this is so nice <laughs> it's, it's it's so nice to not have to battle the person who's uh 
gotten enough of the head on their shoulders that they're confident about something, but they maybe shouldn't be confident about it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what do people get wrong about you? Probably just ties into that is the I don't write parts for you. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think that I think there's a question later that kind of ties into this where it's just the I people don't understand exactly what you do or your role. I mean, you're called a producer, but their last producer did it completely differently than how you do it. And there's assumptions there that, I've, you know, I've had bands assume that I'm going to be writing their melodies for them mm -hmm. for parts or uh, figuring out oh, they don't have a bridge. Well, I'll write the bridge for them. I'm like, no, I'm not going to. Like, it's kind of like I, I want this to be your thing. I want it to be you guys. Mm -hmm. And, and I, there's a weird gray area there of like, I mean, I definitely like dive deep on like structuring, which is mm -hmm. writing. Yes. But it's, it's somehow less invasive to me than like reaching for a guitar and changing chord progressions and melodies and even lyrics i mean which i've done all those things to some extent but like it's not a it's i guess i come up with my own, i guess we all come up with our own level of where we're comfortable at being but i guess when it comes to yeah this misconception is i usually have to lead off a lot of conversations with bands i haven't worked with before in that i'm not going to write your parts for you so if you had someone do that for you before this isn't the right you're not i'm not the right person for you and i think that's the single most uh important thing is talking to people about that that level because i think that that line is so blurred in what people think of producer these days and the other big thing is is like i i where I say I'm convinced, I shouldn't say I think this is the case for everything, every single producer, but I think some of the problem with a lot of records becomes is that the band has a melodic sense and then somebody interjects their melodic sense into it and it makes a really blurred emotional perspective a lot of the time instead of the producer that just says, hey, this isn't there yet you need to work on this more right but come up with your own melody because i want it to sound like you not like my melody that i've potentially put on 15 other bands this year that uh didn't come up with anything exactly and that and it's exa I, mean, I couldn't say it better myself I mean, that's exactly how i feel about it i'm like this needs to come from you mm -hmm. and, I, and i'll point you in the direction and i'll i'll guide you but i i want and, and most bands want that i don't know i agree at the end of the day they still want it to be them and uh, i don't know it that it's just a, it's a tough it's an uphill battle i mean I, uh, you i think you and i are similar in that mm -hmm. world that it's just i'm constantly dealing with bands that have worked with somebody that wrote their parts for them I'm like no yeah and it, it's especially a tough one to follow because if they've gotten lazy or they know that they can fall back on that it's not so fun to deal with because you're like oh i really don't want to go here but if you're gonna make me go here i guess we're gonna go here yeah i say most of the time it tends to be harmonies mm -hmm. that yes bands never they their last producer melodined all their harmonies for mm -hmm. them or something like that and or they the heat the producer sang them or something and then so then they come in and it's just not even a thought to them that they're gonna work on harmony yes it's like oh casey will just do it and i mean so i've i've I have reluctantly taken on that role quite a bit as far as just, all right, I'm going to all sit down and I'll write all your harmonies for you. <laughs> uh, uh, same exact thing. Um, and that I'm a little less bummed about, but 
I still would prefer yeah. that wasn't the case. We're just perpetuating the cycle, man. We gotta put a yes. stop to this. We need to get singers to learn how to harmonize with themselves. I think that's that's the bigger problem. With that music memos app in the phone, there's no excuse anymore. I haven't used it that much. I've I remember being really interested in when that app came out, and I is it is it pretty powerful? I had somebody walk in recently with. Uh, like the whole record mapped out and it was like one of those things that, that like I, I have this like theory in music that it's like it's like no musician no band is ever using the tools even near what they could be like I'm really convinced that like musicians are the worst innovators on earth right now like it's <laughs> yeah. even just like the thing like I make this joke about like YouTube I'm like everybody who's a huge YouTube star is also the worst songwriter that once like actual people who write good songs learn how to use YouTube properly it's over for all these like terrible terrible bands oh absolutely and it's just like this thing of like they're all terrible when i saw this guy like come in and he's just like hitting the things he's like all right here's the harmony for the next one sings it back here's the harmony for the next one I'm like why is no one doing this <laughs> <laughs> you know what that reminds me of what's that is uh vic from pierce the veil uh-huh. uh i did that i did their first record and he came in with that whole record mapped out in pro tools the, the kids of little mad scientist and uh, i mean we he had so much of that record done like parts of it i mean we changed a bunch but i mean he just as far as verses and like having harmony i mean there's like multiple layers he had it all mapped out and it'd be the same thing he would just solo the track and here's the harmony be like, he'd hear it once and go okay and then we'd track it for real and he'd go to the next one and do it again and it was such an interesting way to, to make a record and i wish more bands would embrace i mean that was that was like 10 years ago and things have come a long way since mm-hmm. then and i just i wish bands would really embrace the technology that's available to them that's like in a, like free like that music app mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I i i do think uh the bands that have that tend to be uh tend to make a better record for sure because i absolutely i think it, the, the thing people get wrong about like demos is like every song is like a picture and we just the earlier we can see how clear the picture is the more we get good perspective on it Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that's what uh, I guess that's what happened with the Portugal record. It was just one long demo session until we finally did the real record in the last six months. That's funny. We got just get the get a, get a perspective on it. I don't know. That's that, that, that's a, that's an interesting uh, thought, thought of it that you're uh, in professional studios where you could potentially keep all of it. But then you're not. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> So tell me about the process and how you change it when you work with these local bands versus an established band like Portugal. With local bands, it's I actually have I think I have more fun with with and it it kind of comes back to the, what we just talked about where it's like a lot of times they're coming in and they're being like, dude, whatever you want to do, mm-hmm. you can do. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> let's do this. Let's get crazy. And so there tends to be kind of like a, a mentor, a, a apprentice kind of a vibe when it comes to like these like DIY bands and stuff. It, they're, they're coming to me because they want they want my input and they they're 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 ready to hear it and they're ready they'll absorb it and they'll take it and it's not a thing of like there's there's very rarely like egos involved and like they're just happy to be there and they just want to make an awesome sounding project so i've had so much fun doing that lately and then with established bands it's just it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about it's just it's knowing those guys and working with them 
how they work and changing my style and and it's it's definitely more it's not so much the I'm the ruler and you guys are the little ones it's just it's definitely more of a little bit more of a level playing field mm-hmm. when it comes to working with established bands I guess uh, that's probably the best answer yeah. I can come with for that no, that's really well put actually what happens when someone says nobody will hear that are you talking about like a, a part of a song or an instrument or something I think this is just like one of those things that kind of def- the way you deal with nobody will, will hear that, like, I, I think it comes up in so many contexts. Like, in the studio of, like, you know, somebody's, like, you know, for example, there's the ringing of a guitar up top or the cymbal squeak or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, do you have a, a philosophy that you use to guide you through that? I try to stand back, and I'm, I'm constantly trying to hear it as someone on the outside is hearing things and so mm-hmm. it's 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 a weird thing of like I'm, I'm kind of able to step back and, and I'm, I'm listening to the song as a whole where I know that the drummer is sitting there like l- dissecting every hit and squeak of you know every little thing and, and, and same with all the other guys but usually tends to be the drummer yes yes yes, yes. and if I don't hear it you know after we've heard it a hundred times and it's unless it's a really quick and easy fix like a little crossfade or some sort of cut and paste thing I'm just like, no, no, we're fine Mm -hmm. and move on. And the other side of the way I was reading that question was uh, like if a play, if someone in the band has a part of a song, like I'm I'm thinking like keyboards or something like a pad that's like just kind of textural and in there. and, And, and then the thing of like, somebody's like, well, nobody will hear that. And then it becomes this game of, well, so the keyboard player is playing this part that's, that's hardly there. And if anything, it just kind of muddies things up, but he's a keyboard player and he's, what's he going to do on stage for this whole part of this whole song? And so you're kind of, at that point, I'm kind of like, all right, it's in there. It's in there. Mm-hmm. I promise. Yes. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's in there. Don't worry. No. And so he'll play that part live and it, it might not actually be on the recording. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, and, and, and we've all been there with that one of like, all right, well, guess you need something to do. And this part doesn't need a tambourine. So great. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what order do you commonly track in? I think like this is one of the things that's changing the most is when amateurs think of it, it's drums, bass, guitar, vocals. Do you, Is that always your order? What are you doing these days? That's actually, that's a good question because you're right. Things are changing. And that was... Uh... I was going to kind of tie in the I the Mighty stuff here because we did we we did the entire record first without doing drums and bass. Oh, and interesting. It was I th- this is happening a little bit more often, but basically the band I I I dearly love these guys. Like honestly, like they're like some of the funnest dudes I've ever worked with, like sweetest guys, but they're all they all want their even say on everything like there's no like one leader and so before the record like the the drum and the the drummer and the bass player were like we want chris crumman to produce the record and the mm-hmm. singer and the guitar player were like we want casey bass to produce the record and somehow and they're all so nice to each other and they're they get along so well and they're just like this like happy family they're like well let's just have them both do it <laughs> and so they proposed this idea of having me do all the guitars, keys, vocals first, and then they would go down to Portland and do the bass and drums with Crummit. Huh. And I, I was like, okay, <laughs> like that sounds interesting and fun, and 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 we'll have to figure out a way to make this work. And so we ended up the uh, Blake, the drummer, just he he's good with like MIDI stuff, so he just started he started writing out all of his drum parts in MIDI, which 
was kind of a cool way to do it because you you're, it, it, the drums become a lot more fluid. I mean, I know you can do a lot after you've tracked drums to, to structure parts or change things, but it, it becomes harder when you're wanting to change the actual part of the, like the, the beat itself or a drum fill. So it kind of gave us this freedom of we used these uh, fake MIDI drums for everything and a MIDI bass, which sounded hilarious. Hmm. And we, we, we tracked all the guitars, keys, and vocals and structured the songs completely out ahead of time. And then they were able to take those instrumentals and just go down to Portland and do all the bass and the drums. And it, it, it worked out really well. It, we actually needed more time. I, it was one of the, it was just a crazy situation of like there, they're like, we want to do a whole month with you in Seattle, and we're going to do guitars, vocals, and keys. And I was like, well, what are we going to do with the last two weeks of this month? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're in, but it ended up, we just, it was one of those things, and kind of going back to how these guys are on this like level playing field of like, it just took a long time. Like, it was constantly like, is this the best tone that we can get? Is this the best part we can get? And it was just a very slow. I mean, we would we would lose entire days to trying to lay down like two guitar leads, and so it would just, it really kind of slowed things down. That uh, we we ended up not finishing everything which is crazy cuz i was like this is going to be so easy i was like i was picturing like two day two days off every week and 8 hour days and it kind of snowballed into not a lot of time off and and just constantly trying to to find the best thing but it hey the record came out awesome and it just was a lot of work but it it, it it did chris like killed it it was it was it was really cool because you can the idea of changing drums like mm-hmm. at the last minute i mean he was in there changing beats and fills like oh we don't really like the vibe or this hi-hat pattern on this and so he'd go in there and change it and it's instantly changed in the session and we can hear it and go okay and and then when he gets down to crummets it's like all right this is the part play it and i think uh part one of the downsides to this is that when he got to Crummits, he was kind of playing the parts for the first time. Ah, so yes, this is this is the issue. Yes, there's 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 good and bad to this whole thing. And I, if I had to do it all over again, I think the process would need to be long, even longer. And I think the whole the whole reason they did it this way was because they thought it would be faster. Mm. But but just getting the MIDI sounding right and doing all this stuff i'm like man we should have just tracked real drums and let me do a rough comp of them and 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 then retract them again at the end like i almost think that would have been quicker and easier but yeah i've i've uh, I've done that and it it is interesting i think the problem then you get into is that like the groove's slightly different from one thing to the next whereas the midi you can just hit quantize and let that be that yeah exactly it's interesting because like i know that's uh how periphery did their last record is like you know he had all that but i think the 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 difference in the steps there was that he took a while to practice those drum parts before they laid them down yeah it was i i I just think it was probably the timeline just needed to be changed a little bit like there probably should have been a couple weeks of a break between me and Crummit, mm-hmm. and that would have. And it's not to say that I mean the things came out great. Yes. I just know that it it was a little bit like slower. Like they had to kind of go part to part and really focus on because he hadn't played them a ton. So mm-hmm. it just there's just there's downsides and upsides to both ways. But I I I like the idea. I like the idea of of taking especially just especially drums. I like the idea of being able to kind of maybe hit them at the end. Mm-hmm. But you really got to have. You got to have somebody that really knows the technology of programming drums 
to be able to like write the parts and I think that that's probably the biggest step. Once I yep. get it into Pro Tools, I'm I can handle it. But it's like it's getting all that stuff written ahead of time that becomes I think the challenge. And so I don't know. I think I think I think it would help drummers if they kind of learned how to do that stuff. Yeah, I've been really thinking about getting the E kit for this because when we have to write heavily, this that that order has, I think helps the writing process a lot because you can just go over do over not have to worry about symbol bleed and drastic edits and it is interesting but with that so what is your usual order outside this record uh drums bass guitars keys vocals I mean it's that's gonna be not 80 90 percent of the time mm. is is I will lay down yeah just kind of your standard order I, I I can see and like you said, you feel like things are starting to change. I, I can see that things are going to be, I can see it kind of going a different way with the way technology is changing. I mean, the the Portugal record was another example of just things that got done in any order. Mm. I mean, it was, there was no, <laughs> it was like, it was, there was no right or wrong way to, to come up with a song on, on that one. It was just like, whatever is happening at that moment is what we're going to be working on. So... <laughs> And it works. Yeah. What's the best lesson you've learned about creativity lately? The best lesson I've learned is that it sh it should not be easy. Hmm. I'm saying that coming off of a couple records where it was the idea of like, is this really the best that I can do? Like, is this too many bands? I think write a part and like this this is catchy, cool, and they're and they and they don't want to they're that's it they're 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 back that that's the part it's done i'm gonna move on to the next part and i'm gonna work on that part and it's not it, i mean i i'm sure you've ran into this problem and i it's i haven't really coined a phrase for it yet but it's like most bands tend to skimp on the bridge like they mm -hmm. just they've they've worked their asses off on the on the verses and maybe a pre-chorus and a chorus and that bridge comes and it's like oh you want me to write like the like a whole new part to this song that is also supposed to elevate the song and be like the driving point of everything. Nah, I'm just gonna like we're gonna drop down to a soft, you know, yeah. roomy part here and and then we'll kick back into that last chorus. And so my kind of thing is it's changed a lot more in that I used to kind of be like, man, songwriting should be easy. This shit should just come easy to you. Like, write your song, and, and that's your song. I really don't think that way anymore. I, mm. I think to get the best out of... I really think if you have the means, and that's the other side of the equation, if you have the time and the means to do it, I think, like, go over the stuff time and again and, like, really ask yourself, are these the... Are these the best lyrics that I can be writing for this part? Is this really, is this driving the point of the song home? Is this working, is this really working for, for the listener and, and being self-critical? And it's, it's not an easy thing to do at all. But I think that that would be my one lesson would be, it shouldn't be easy. <laughs> go back, go over everything. Like if you want it to be the best it can be, then spend the time and Force yourself, like, try to one-up yourself. Try yeah. to make, is that, you know, maybe you really like guitar lead. Maybe it can be better. And if this isn't something you're going to be doing in the studio because you're paying for time and and me and, and but leading up to that through writing these songs in pre-production, like, where you ha theoretically have a lot of time on your hands to be working on these songs, like, challenge yourself. Challenge. I guess that would be the one thing. It would be just a challenge. Yeah, and I, there's this, like, Rick Rubin thing, like, where he kind of talks about, like, um... It's based on like kind of the advertising wor world thing of like that, you know, in advertising, it's like you come up with, you don't just go, 
write a headline, write a headline, write a headline for an ad, and then go, okay, I got one that's decent enough. It's like, you write 25, then you take that one, that's the best one of those 25, and then you write 25 variations of that one. And yes. you, you know, with music, it's like, yes, you nailed it. Now let's try some variations. And the one, maybe that first one is the one that stays, but let's verify that that's as good as possible by hearing some variations on it. And that is not a punk rock way to write music. <laughs> no, it is, especially <laughs> since it comes from a uh, advertising book written in 1955. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... I don't know, man. I've I, I've I've done a, I've dabbled in a little bit more in the pop world, and it, it's 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 a fascinating style change in in that it, it's constantly like trying. Let's just make it better, make it better, make it better, and uh, I I think that could be beneficial to all music actually. Mm-hmm. I, I I am with you. Uh, do you have any philosophy on how you sequence a record? Not anymore. I used to be super into that. Uh, my my one thing is I want I. I, I want to know what the first song is. If if that's a a known thing, I want to know what that first song is going to be because that really kind of helps me. I've always had it in my head. It's always been every record I grew up listening to. It's that first song really sets the stage, like tonally, production wise, song wise, like it. And it and to me, that first knowing that first song as early in the process as possible really ha- helps shape how I perceive the rest of the record. Uh, but from beyond that. Unless it's a concept record, I don't really, I don't really, I don't really get into it anymore. My, mm. in fact, the the advice I've been giving to bands lately has been do it with the label. Like give, and and, and the reason I say that is that it gives the label a little bit of a creative input and in a maybe a little bit of a feeling of ownership over the record that mm. they wouldn't otherwise have. Like they, I. I I say I always say to my bands, I'm like, if you're on a label, like do everything you can to stay close with them. Keep, yeah, keep, like keep your interests aligned. And like a, a good example was uh, uh, the Emerosa record I did. Uh, I mixed that record, and the band they're so chill, and they're they're so like I did like two mixes passes on it, and they're like, sounds fine to us. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is which is awesome yes. for me because we're like, oh okay, I'm done. But at the same time, I was like, I actually wanted more input because totally. it wasn't there yet. And so I actually went back. To, I went to the label and I said, hey, I talked to the. It was a Hopeless Records and it was Eric Tobin. I yes. said, hey, you mind if I send you these songs and uh and and you and I do a little bit of back and forth and talk about these songs and and he just like loved it. Like he was so excited that he got to have a little bit of a say in 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 the record and and he was personally involved and sending me notes and talking about things and i know on some level i don't know how much but on some level i think that helped them the band as far as the label feeling a little bit more of an ownership over over that product and in and being invested in it and wanting to help push it and so just a little thing i think it's also fresh ears as far as sequencing goes like i don't know maybe i think that's the most important yeah like they're hearing it and they're hearing a song that like wow this should be the number number three you know like this is the song that is going to really get people going and the band's like whoa 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 that's not the song we were thinking and and i don't know it can get a dialogue going and things i i i've just i've I've been kind of getting burned out on too many cooks in the kitchen so i'm just kind of like like you guys you guys do it i'm gonna be cool with it (laughs) i think i think the greatest evidence of this too is like it's the like uh I always make this joke like when people are like, why is this song track seven? It's like the best song. I think I'm like, because that was the first good song they wrote, but they were tired of it by the time they sequenced the records. Yep. And yep. so now it's track seven. 
Oh, totally. I've had that. I've had that happen so many times. Or, yep. Yeah, like like the coolest song is just they're so burnt out on it. They're yep. like, ah, this dumb song, and and it ends up being like the their hit song. So, but I think you made a great point about that kind of like label ownership. Is that like especially with a label or a manager who this is not their only band they're dealing with? Is like you know people get really into like I don't want to give them a high percentage. I don't want to give them this. It's like well everything's a balance of how much incentive you give them each day. So you got to consider that part of it too, is that, you know, if they're making 20% more on this and, you know, you're, and, you know, even down to like the producer point is like that so many bands, when they first hear of producer points, get freaked out. And it's like, well, when they really believe in you and they think they're going to do something, that's an added incentive to do even more work. It's a, it's a fascinating balance that I've constantly toyed with and experimented with over the years and, and, and just kind of observed where I've done I've done like a project where I do a record for like free. I'm like, all right, we're going to, uh, I'm going to do this record for free for you guys and we're going to sell it to a label. And, and it's happened and, and it backfires in a weird way. And a lot of bands do this too, where they'll, they'll, they'll record an EP or a record and they'll be like, well, here it's done. So here you go. Mm-hmm. And, and what the, the downside to this that I've, I've observed is th- that the label has so little ownership and so little invested in, in, in this process like you're just handing them a finished product they're handing you some money usually not mm-hmm. a lot and they're going i mean and and that's all they're into it for at that point you know mm-hmm. maybe they've promised you a little bit of promotion but a lot of the times in my experience when when there's not the steps and the investment like across the board it, it tends to be like they're just like well we'll just put it out and see what happens like we don't we're, we don't have that much to lose on this and it only needs to sell you know a thousand records for us to make back whatever we just paid for it and uh, it's an interesting balance of i i i, I thought it was going to be so easy oh it's just yeah we'll just give them the record and then mm-hmm. they'll do it and then and then realize they don't have any investment in it and yes. they don't really care and so it's that's a good lesson for bands to be at least thinking about when they're thinking about doing projects like this where they're thinking, well, we'll just record the record ourselves and we'll put it out with a label. And you're not thinking about the politics and the psycho- psychology of you and your relationship with that label going forward. It's really interesting. That That is extremely well put and probably one of the better lessons uh, people can learn from this podcast. So what's something outside of the audio world you're good at? I have a lot of hobbies. Yeah. I I'm never bored and I I I'm I'm a super nerd and I love computers and weird computery things and space and all that stuff but probably carpentry would probably mm. be the one thing that I I love doing like home remodels like I'm if I have free time between projects I'm like I'm at a friend's house like tearing down a wall and building them a new kitchen and stuff like that. Like, oh, I wow. love doing stuff like that. Yeah, I I bought my wife and I bought a house uh, in Washington, I think in 2010, and we've I mean I've remodeled every, every floor, door, ceiling, light, uh, piece of molding and the every part of this house has been completely redone by me and it's like it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever I ever got into. When I bought my first house, I didn't even know what drywall was. I had no <laughs> idea. And so it was just like, I just started watching YouTube uh-huh. and like, it's amazing, man. You like, you get in there, like you, you're like, how do I replace a toilet? And you just go on YouTube and there's a video that shows yep. you how to replace your own toilet. And it's, it's usually not that hard. You just follow the steps and do it. But 
I, I'm like constant, I'm just, I love, it's, it's so rewarding, like building something and like living in it. <laughs> it's, like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's one of, that's probably my favorite thing that I do outside of the audio world. That's really rad. What is the musical bane of your existence? Uh, uh, the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> great, great answer. Probably <laughs> So weddings aren't so fun for you then. <laughs> <laughs> That, them, and, and Will I Am. Uh, those are the two things that, like, I, <laughs> oh, did, did you watch? Did you watch I, the Defiant ones? No, I have. I I I, ha- I haven't watched it yet. I've I've heard really good things. Are they like a part of that? He he does the cringiest interviews in that. And like oh, no. the, like even the space he's in is so cringy. You're just like every time he comes on, like I like grab at my shirt. Like I'm like, oh god, hold me, hold me. This is so bad. I don't. I, it is. Un- he has. He's had his like his ha- fingers dipped in technology for so long, and it's always the worst stuff. Like I don't even <laughs> understand. Like he is, it is unbelievable to me that he has like this influence and money and and whatever, and he just has no idea what's good. I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't mean to. <laughs> yeah, I understand. That much, but... <laughs> hey, we, we, you know, we all have the thing we have to rebel against, and, and acknowledging what that thing is is sometimes really good. So we see what not to do. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I just saw just a quick thing, but I just I I was on Twitter this morning. It's funny that we're even talking about this because he bought I think he bought the company Wink, which is like this home automation thing, uh-huh. and, it, and it was a they they do like uh, light switches that you can turn yep. on and off from your phone. Which I actually have I have like some Wink lights, and they're pieces of garbage. Like they're like the worst. Thing. I actually got in like a Twitter fight with the company a long time ago because I was like, I was like, you are selling a product that turns lights on and off that doesn't work 100% of the time. And I'm like, of course, Will I am wants to buy this company. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, well, for the record, I really like my uh, Belkin Weibo ones. I have, I have, I have those, and I have the Philips Hue. It's hilarious. My wife is like, the, our house is this like insane mishmash of all these weird things. I will say that. We got one of those, uh, the Echoes, the Amazon uh-huh. Alexa yep. thing, and it interfaces with like all of the different brands. So interfaces mm-hmm. with like Wemo and Nest and Hue. And so you actually have one place to do everything. I've, I've actually had a blast using that thing. It works amazing. I, it's the same thing. Is there, There's nothing I like more than being able to tell Alexa to turn off a light. I, am, I get the utmost satisfaction out of that for some reason. Oh, I, we, I have her, she can turn on my my Apple TV now and pause it. Oh, wow. Okay, now, now, I, now I have something to do today. Well, I've got a, I, I, uh, my wife and I had our first child two months ago. So Congratulations. Two month old, thank you. And I'm, it's insane how much it changes things. But one thing, you are always with one hand, like you're carrying a baby and you always have one arm. And so like having, and we had just got the Alexa and it's like the best thing ever where I can just be like alexa turn on the tv and it's like it's it's incredible how well it works that's awesome is there a book or a documentary that really influenced you on music man i do not read and it's a (laughs) terrible habit i mean i i read i read the internet but i hardly ever read any books it's so bad and i know there's so many good ones and i actually have read i've read a couple biographies and i love it and i just have a hard time sitting down and reading a book uh uh, yeah, I don't really got a good one for you. Uh, uh, the documentary thing, which would be, what what was the first uh, Blink-182 documentary they did? Oh, the, the Urethra Chronicles? That's what it is. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that, <laughs> as embarrassing as that might be, that's probably, that actually, I mean, I think that is one of the most fun documentaries mm-hmm 
ever. And I remember the second one was not good at all, but the first one is like all this home footage of them just in a van on the road, be, like having fun, like doing doing what you should be doing at that age. And uh, that like, I watched that thing a million times and it kept me wanting to, to stay in music and, and to 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 work in music in some way. I, I, I owe a lot to that band. Oh, that's, that, that, I think that's the thing is, is sometimes those spirit documentaries are really what keeps it going. I, I always joke that I had the horrifying thing of, um, I saw the decline of Western civilization part two as an aspirational thing as a 12 year old and then watched it as an adult <laughs> and cringed all the way through it of going, Oh my God, this is what I wanted to become. <laughs> 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 it's it's interesting the little things that grab you and, and kind of push you in in a direction. I, 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 there was another quick aside. Mm -hmm. The you remember that band Slick Shoes? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I they they released that four song EP on Tooth and Nail. I mean, mm -hmm. this must have been like 15 years ago, and it just blew my mind. And I I went and saw them play live to like 10 people in a shitty venue outside of Seattle, and there was no one there, and they played like they were playing to 10,000 people and and I'm in the I was just in the front jumping around and just having the best time of my life and it, it was just like just seeing a band do that in front of 10 people that was another one of those moments where it was like it's like it was like that documentary like it was like I just wanted to be in this world and do that and it's like I don't know it's another thing that kind of ties in a little bit with the stuff when when you, it's not easy being these bands that are only playing to 10 kids but I'm telling you every once in a while there's going to be a kid in that crowd that like sees what if you're if you're giving it your all it's it can change somebody. It's true. And I, I you know, the thing I, I always go back to and I talked about in my first book is like, you know, there's been bands I've been in where we've paid to 18 people, but the, one of those 18 people's cousin is the A&R at the label that calls them to come out to our next show. Yep. And it makes a huge difference to have a good attitude about that. It's not easy, I know, but yep. yeah, try. <laughs> What's something you believe that everyone else thinks you're crazy to think? Uh, I think this is changing, but my thing, I've always been a very simple gear person, and I, I am fully on board now with relatively inexpensive gear is just as good as anything you're going to find in any professional studio. Mm. To add, add up, up to a point, I mean... You can't go out and buy a hundred dollar interface and and have that cover your bases. But I think I, well, this would have been before since the last time you and I talked mm -hmm. was I switched over to the uh, the UAD Apollo uh -huh. as as my main interface. So I use that. It's the I have the eight P, and so I have eight mic pre's here, and I I got rid of all of my outboard gear, and so I just use and I only I really only use the UAD stuff as. Uh, my chain into Pro Tools. I rarely use it in Pro Tools because I it drives me crazy that it has to be tied to the interface. If mm -hmm. like I wanted to go to a coffee shop and do some edits, and all of a sudden half my plugins don't work. Yes. So I use I actually set up like another external monitor that I just sit right on top of my Apollo, and it has the rack always showing, and it's it's like my virtual rack of outboard gear that I use as my way into Pro Tools, and I've I've. I mean, this is not, I mean, it's it's expensive, but it, you're talking a couple thousand dollars mm -hmm. and, and a laptop and all of a sudden I can make a record sound incredible with, you know, a couple decent mics after that. And I I, I just really think it's changed, especially recently with the way things have gone. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I have a Kemper profiler, which I use on so much stuff and it's kind of mind blowing what that thing can yeah. do. And all, I mean, I'm, I'm down to just like, I've got a nice MIDI keyboard and my Apollo and my Kemper and I'm like, it's about it. Actually, I'm looking around here. It's like, 
that's like my whole setup and I'm running it all off of a laptop now which is just insane that's pretty wild so I was gonna ask you about your philosophy on equipment but I think that you kind of covered that what's a piece of gear or plug-in you use and that you love but no one else seems to love my is a kind of a weird answer is that my thing is the keyboard mouse and monitor I use are are so important to me and mm. it's one of my it's one of the things like, I travel with my keyboard and mouse. I just use the Apple uh, Magic Mouse and the their standard keyboard, mm -hmm. but I'm so used to it. Like I, I'm like tactically, like I can just reach down. I know where all the keys are. It feels right. I can, I can do it. It's and I'm, it's something I'm doing eight hours a day, and I'm, I'm very good with those tools. And so I just travel with them everywhere I go. I go to a studio. I've got all this stuff with me, and I, like, I can't do the trackballs. Like it's just, yes, it, it instantly feels like I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm on crutches or something yep. and I'm slow and I can't and e even if it's a normal mouse I'm like it doesn't have the f the the left and right scrolling that a the magic mouse does like little things that like the the kind of tools that t tend to be overlooked and in my experience has been most studios like they'll have just this like shitty little monitor sitting eight feet away on top of the desk and I'm like oh my gosh I'm gonna spend four weeks like squinting at this thing that has a terrible resolution <laughs> and I can't I can only see like two tracks at a time and so I don't know just kind of a, I know I'm I'm guessing that's probably an answer you haven't really gotten to that question I kind of wanted to throw that no, out there but like I, I I'm with you on this uh, I, I have to do the same thing yeah I need I need a nice big monitor that works well and I and I and I need my keyboard and mouse I we were in uh we were doing a uh a stint in Hollywood on the Portugal record and we went to this really cool old studio there and they literally had like a 15 inch like LCD like six feet away and it was like running this horribly small resolution and I'm like this no I was like we can't do this like we're so the we just like the band just went to Best Buy and bought a really nice monitor and just donated it to him like here we we're gonna need this if we're gonna be here for a few weeks it's important it, it really is and the other thing too is is like what I when I got fed up with it I was working with really creatively fast people and I've always been able to catch up. Like there's never even been a point in my 20 years. That I'm like, oh, I didn't keep up with how fast the ideas were uh, flowing. And then all of a sudden it's like, cause I'm on that trackball and a tiny monitor. It's like, I can't get things done as fast as we need to get them done. And exactly. It was that thing of, I'm like, never again go out. I buy a second mouse. And I'm like, I'll just use this one when the next one dies. And it's like one of those things. It's like, it, it's important to keep up and be able to go with the flow of ideas more than probably most pieces of gear. Oh, I couldn't not agree more. And I, and I've actually another shift that's been happening mainly because of the way the newer interfaces have gone. Uh, and it actually happened when I was at that uh, Big Blue North there in Utica, mm -hmm. and we were we were into the record about a week. And he, the owner of the studio, bought a new interface. I'm, I can't remember what it was, uh, but it was actually for the Paris record. He it was a request from them, and it's a it was a Thunderbolt interface. And I'm like, well, hey, I've got my laptop here which has everything that i use on it all my plugins all my instruments everything i'm like can we just plug this in and and it was like it was so easy just a thunderbolt cable right into my macbook mm -hmm. and all of a sudden i'm i'm running this huge studio from my laptop and it has all of my stuff and i'm super comfortable and i was like whoa this is so much better than using your computer with you know whatever stuff you have and 
I've, I've hit a couple studios since then where I'll even ask them, like, do you guys have a Thunderbolt interface? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, cool. I'm bringing my laptop. Don't even worry about yours I'm just, or your computer. I'm going to run it off mine. And, and it is amazing. It's like, makes me feel like I'm at home. Yeah. I, I, I think this is really what uh, computers speeding up are going to do to people like us who go to other studios a lot is that like, you can just do it. You know, it's like yeah. my, my Mac garbage can I can throw in my backpack and put in on my back while I bike to and from wherever. And it's like, it makes a huge difference. Oh, you actually take that with you? I literally bike. So if I know like it's going to be like a long weekend and I might have some like most of my mixing and mastering changes, you know, are just turn the vocal up. Da, da, da. I yeah. have monitors in my office. I have things, you know, half the time if it's a mastering change, it's just put two more seconds between these songs. And I bring that home and I literally throw it in my backpack. It's a little nerve wracking biking through New York City and Brooklyn with $5,000 on your back. But um, I know I was going to say that thing is that thing is not cheap. Yeah. Insurance, um, but uh, it, 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 it's uh, sometimes I take the subway just because I'm so scared. But uh, it, it, it is a uh, it, it is interesting to be able to do that, and then you're just like, yo, I feel at home anywhere I go with this thing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 been really cool, uh, really neat. I've yeah. So with that, even though you kind of got into some pretty cheap stuff, is there anything you could recommend to people under $200 they might not know about it? Oh, I, I didn't actually have an answer to this question. Okay. I I mean, my my thing would be an SM57. Yep. It's, I, think, I think I might have said that in the last one. I, 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 it's just, it's still... It's still my go-to, and I, I would say another thing maybe would be just to get a good, get a good road like large diaphragm condenser mic. They probably have one for two hundred bucks that probably sounds awesome, and it would be a good a good purchase that can kind of cover a lot of different use cases for you. I think a Rode NTK used is two seventy-five, and I'm a hundred percent with you there. Is that uh, that's an amazing overhead vocal room mic, whatever you want to do with yeah. it. I think that's good advice. So is there anything else you should promote, talk about before we end? I don't have a lot uh, with my with my, with my my baby being born. I just have been kind of, I didn't take on any big projects this summer. I've been doing a lot of local stuff here and there and, and trying to be at home as much as possible. So nothing big coming up. I do have, uh, I did a podcast. I did kind of like a first season of it yes. uh, that I released last year i think it was like seven or eight episodes there's some really cool stuff in there it's not for everybody it's very specific because uh there it's i'm sitting down and we're going over records that i produced with the artists themselves and so you've got to be a fan of that that record really to be getting much out of it but there's some cool records in there if you go to the, it's just called the casey bates podcast and if you go just scroll through a couple of them there's you know the the Fear Before the March of Flames, the Always Open Mouth uh, record. We went over that one, and that's Great a fun record. episode. Yeah. So there's some cool stuff in there for people that, if, if they know my work, there might be something in there they could find. Very rad. And yeah, I highly recommend it. I remember listening to the early episodes, and you guys did a great job with that stuff. Nice. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. 
I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.